Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, Brian Velalunga. Brian, thank you for joining. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, so Brian, um, you know, being the CEO of Doppler, my question to you, you guys just went through a, a significant fundraising round. But, but before we get to that, you know, how did you get to this point How'd you get into cybersecurity? What was it? What was the thought process? Was this something you always wanted to do growing up, or? Yeah, it was something we uh, honestly I kind of just stumbled into. Um, a little backstory: It was uh, before I was working at Doppler, I was at Uber, and I've always I'm I'm a builder at heart. I love building stuff, um, and I was working on this project, uh, the side project, Wallet Uber, and it was a crypto machine learning marketplace. Uh, so. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of all the buzzwords in one. <laughs> and it very much felt like pushing a boulder up a hill where like every foot that you move forward, you'd slide five feet back from exhaustion. And I just could not get this thing off the ground. Um, and so at about eight months in, I was really, really frustrated. And I decided to take a trip to Cancun to kind of de-stress from it all. Um, and and, the, go and the, the goal was not to think about uh, the crypto machine learning marketplace at all and just take a break. Um, and the first day there, I just, my mind started racing. I was like, oh, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do to get this thing off the ground. And so I started looking at all the problems that I was facing. I was like, well, if, if this crypto machine learning marketplace is not going to work, um, is there something that I can learn from it? And maybe there's a, there's a hidden gem in it, a startup or a project or something in there that I can, that I can start working on because I, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm kind of like one of the, you know, those people who like are always happen to be in relationships. I'm like one of those for projects. Like I always happen to be in a project. Like there's, sure. there's, I don't think there's a time in my life. I'm pro I'm sure right when I came out, um, uh, out of my mom, uh, I was working on, I was coding on a project or something like, <laughs> and, um, so I was like, what can I, what can I glean from this? And, uh, managing environment variables and, and secrets was like a really big problem that I had faced for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I go back uh, when I come back from Cancun and I go to this room full of developers. I think it was like 50 or 60 of them. They were mostly founders as well. And I go, hey, am I a bad developer? Is the world broken? You tell me. Um, and at the time, I wasn't really thinking about this as like a cybersecurity tool or, uh, or uh, at all. I was just thinking like, hey, I'm a developer. I'm having this massive pain point and it happens to be managing sensitive data. Um, and a lot of them, like I think 50, per, 50 plus percent said, yeah, I've had problems managing this as well. And so I started looking at the industry and I found that like individual developers were struggling, security experts were struggling. Um, the entire uh, gamut of, um, of people were struggling from uh, very small uh, companies to the largest of largest companies were struggling. Um, that included people that were using HashCorp Vault. They were struggling a lot and also paying a lot of money, like half a million to 5 million a year. And then the, uh, then the security team could not get their developers to use it. And so I had this thought around like, well, why is everyone struggling? And it's because the tools weren't made for developers. Like you may have like a, a four or five person security team, but then you'll have like a, a thousand person engineering team. And if the engineers don't want to use it, well, guess what? It's not going to happen. They'll sure. find their way not to use it. Um, 
And so it was just like born out of this idea of like, hey, can we build something for developers? And I love the analogy of like making vegetables taste like candy. I hated eating vegetables growing up. And if they made them taste like candy, I would eat them all day long. And the same thing with security, right? We wanted developers to feel like by using this tool, they got more productive. Um, and then in result, the, the company got more secure. Um, and, and that's kind of how it started. And from there, we within three weeks, we had an MVP built mm-hmm. on the fourth week. Uh, we applied to Y Combinator, which is a, 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 an accelerator in Silicon Valley. Um, we got in and uh, we quickly raised from Sequoia Capital. Um, and then about a year and a half later, we raised from Google. And that's where we're at. Uh, and then it's been a year after that. And uh, we're about to hit 7,000 companies using Doppler. Excellent. Excellent. So, so, so before we get into the fundraising piece of it, tell me about this Forbes 30 under 30. When, when, when did that all come to be? Um, uh, uh, tell me, I mean, I'm very impressive. Thank you. I mean, honestly, I, it's, it's one of these stories that keeps being brought up and it. it's, it's very funny because it's like, I feel like I had almost nothing to do with it. Um, <laughs> I, I remember this so clearly. It was like, I got this email from Forbes and they were like, you've been nominated. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is spam. And I clicked delete. Um, <laughs> and, uh, then like a couple months later, I wake up and my friends are texting me my, and my family's like calling me and, and, and all this stuff. And they're like, you got 30 under 30. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I deleted that email. Um, and, and that's like, funny enough, that's the entire story. Like it was sure. completely without me in control. And, and now I get all these founders like pinging me left and right. And they're like, hey, how did you get on Forbes 30 and 30? And I'm like, this like Forbes 30 under 30 fundraising and all the rest of it comes back to one simple thing. And if you do this, you'll get everything else, including all the capital from like, building a successful company and stuff, which is build a successful company, right? If you build a successful company, everyone will get their, uh, will start to pay attention. That could be from the press, that could be from fund, from investors for fundraising, Forbes or in a 30, from the capital markets, you name it. If you build a good company, the rest follows. Um, and so don't focus on, on getting Forbes or in a 30. Don't focus on, on like fundraising so intensively, just focus on building a really good product and a really big, a really good company. It's a great message. So, so, so now let's get into the fundraising piece of it. So now you've gotten all the success, Sequoia, Google. Um, did they approach you? Do you approach them? For our listeners that, you know, uh, have these ideas for these great companies that are looking to eventually, you know, start raising capital. Can you walk us through some of the process and perhaps some of the, the challenges that you experienced throughout this, uh, you know, fundraising phase? Yeah, happy to. Um, fundraising has been it's been a roller coaster for us. I think we're on the, the up now, but for a while we were on the down. Um, and so when we first got started, we were like, I think we were four weeks in, we had like three customers and MVP built and we started getting, a, uh, we didn't, we knew that we wanted, so backstory, I was still at Uber at the time. Mm-hmm. I got permission from Uber, Uber legal, but was still at Uber and was using Uber to pay for basically my life while working on this project. Um, and I knew that if I could go full-time, that'd be a really big thing. Um, and so um, my co-founder at the time and I kind of just like reached out to our network and I'm like, hey, any investor you can intro me to, like we'll take a meeting with. Um, and we met with a couple and we had these like really weird experiences. Um, the first one, I'm not going to name the, the name of the firm, but um, we met with them and um, they were just kind of like assholes, to be honest. Like we got in this room, we explained our, uh, our startup and what, what we were working on. And oh, by the way, this is a big name firm. I'm not going to say the name, but I guarantee you guys have all heard it. Um, yeah. 
And I just remember this, this thing that he said that, so we were like, Hey, we're going to grow in two parts. Right. And I think a lot of companies do this, like look at Coinbase, for example, right. They launched with just uh, the, the first thing of like buy and sell Bitcoin. And now they have like 50 products or something or like 20 products. Um, and we were like, we're just going to have like two products. Right. And, and both are going to make a shit ton of money. Um, and he was like, you can't be a two stage rocket. Like you need to be a single stage rocket. And, and it was just, and, and like pretty much screamed us out of the room. And we we're like, wow, this was like, wow, this sucks. Um, and so there was a bit of that where it's just like crazy investors expecting you to kind of like be this golden state that they're looking for in their mind that you're not and kind of getting screamed out of the room a little bit. Um, and then there were others where like, uh, there were just other logistical challenges. Like when you're fundraising, it takes a lot of meetings. Um, and you can't just like dip out of work while, while like your teams are depending on you. So we had telephone booths all over Uber. And so I would just jump in a telephone booth when I'm taking an investor meeting <laughs> and my friends would be walking past being like, Hey, we're going to lunch. And I'm like, that's great. Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the investor would be like where you're at and kind of told a little white line, like, Oh, I'm at a WeWork. Um, <laughs> because they also have a conference. They have these like a uh, telephone booth conference rooms. And so there was a lot of logistical stuff like that of like, can I plan my day in a way where I can do both fundraising? and get my core work done without my boss ever noticing. And that was a goal. Like I didn't want to impact Uber. I didn't want, I, I love the company. Um, and I just, but I, but I also wanted a fundraise. Um, and so there was a lot of challenges there. And then things started to change quite dramatically when we got into Y Combinator. It was like mm -hmm. night and day. Um, the second we got into YC, I would say like, so YC, Y Combinator or YC is a, a three month program. And um, about one month in, we just started getting blasted with investors left and right. And um, I don't really know how they got our information. My gut kind of tells me that YC leaked the list and then to like a whole bunch of investors and the investors looked it over and they're like, oh, and I, I think investors really do this in the first pass. They're like, they, they just look at properties of a startup. So they're like, okay, you're B2B SaaS, you're, uh, you're security. So there's going to be some multiplier in your valuation. You're a high margin business. Um, you're, how sticky are you? And they just like, they basically look at all the property startup and that's how they kind of choose who to talk to because they haven't talked to you yet. So how do they know anything more? Um, and a lot of times you don't even have a website. So they only have what the leaked list has um, in regards to information. Um, and so we just started getting hit up because I think we were like, they looked at us and they're like, Ooh, security business developer tools going to have like high price tags and, and really high stickiness, no churn. Um, and it's kind of true. Like once stop, once people implement Doppler, they don't really churn. Um, and so why is that? Um, just because it gets built into their infrastructure and then you don't really want to change your infrastructure too many times. Um, sure. because when you do that, that can cause a lot of problems like outages, leaks, breaches, and so on. Sure. Sure. Um, and, and yeah, so we, we didn't know what we were doing at all. So we just were like, yeah, I'll take the meeting. And one thing, oh, this is a funny part. YC very famously said, don't talk to any investors until demo day. Demo day is like this thing at the very end of uh, Y Combinator where um, everyone gets on stage and presents to a room full of investors. And, and that's really like YC's value add. And so they were like, don't talk to investors before then because it diminishes YC's value add. Every investor that would talk to us. Um, and we had some really weird experiences. Um, and so what we got one tip early on that I think is really useful. It's like when you don't really know how to pitch your startup, uh, talk to the really crappy investors you've never take money from first. The reason why is because it doesn't really matter. Like you learn something either way, right? If they, if they don't write you a check or they don't get to a term sheet, well, you're going to get some data on why. And if they do get to a term sheet, well, now you have a term sheet you can leverage against a better sure. investor. Sure. And, and, and either way, it's a win. Um, you either get data or you get a term sheet. Um, and by the way, when you get a term sheet, you also get some data too. Um, 
So we did that for a bit. And we started like after about like 10 or 15 meetings, we started getting term sheets, very small ones. So it was like 200K here, 500K there. Like when you're raising a seed round, you kind of want to raise somewhere between like two and 3 million bucks. So like a 200K check is not going to, it's not going to move the needle too much. Um, and usually the way round dynamics work is like one big firm comes in and tries to scoop it all up. So if you have too many of these like 200K checks, it kind of ruins the, the round dynamics because like this firm's going to come and say, hey, I need 10 to 15% minimum. Um, and you're going to be like, well, I've sold already half of the company <laughs> or something uh, that, and they won't like that very much. Um, so what we did is we didn't accept any of the term sheets, but we held them. It's called holding the commitment. So they commit to you. You do not commit back to them. You just say, thank you very much. We're going to make a decision at X date. And uh, we didn't really know what to do. So we kind of guessed or walked our way into it. And we said, what are things we can do to slow them down? Because once they give you a term sheet, they're going to badger the hell out of you to basically accept that term sheet. Because the longer it's out there, the more they know it's getting leveraged. Um, and so we said, hey, we're going to make a, in like two months from now or a month from now, we're going to make a decision on, when we, on, on which investors we want to take. In the meantime, though, can you intro me to two prospective uh, customers that are in your portfolio that you think would be a good fit for Doppler and two investors that you've co-invested with in the past that you think would be good, good investors to invest along with for Doppler? And well, when you do that, and let's just say your hit rate gets pretty high, like 50%, right? It starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that gave us a whole bunch of leverage because then when we were talking to the Sequoias of the world, um, we had like five to 7 million in commitments already. So we had a lot of leverage. We'd be like, hey, we don't need you aboard. We'd love to partner with you, but we don't need you. And, and the word need is a very, very powerful word in, in mm. Silicon Valley because investors don't want to give you money to build a rocket. They want already there to be a rocket and they're just buying a seat, right? So if you're saying, hey, I don't need you, but I'd love to work with you. That's the very, very powerful thing to say. Um, and that's basically our message. And we kind of lucked into that. Like it was just a random decision we made and that really, really worked. Um, and then when it came time for Sequoia, we, we went through the whole gauntlet of meetings. And at the very end, uh, we, we chose Sequoia. And then we looked at all the other investors that created the most value during that time, uh, time span, or that we thought were strategically aligned with us. So like the CEO of GitHub, uh, joined mm -hmm. as an investor, the CTO of OpenAI joined and um, a bunch of others. Like uh, actually one of the most uh, helpful investors we've ever had is Jeff Queezer from Box. You probably have never heard of him, but he's one of the founders of Box and he's built an amazing energy team at Box. And he kind of just trained me how to think about those kind of things. And, and he's, he's very hands-on. I have a meeting with him every two weeks and we just try to tackle the hardest problem in Doppler. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we basically built a matrix of all the things we, of attributes of, of investors we thought we'd want. Um, and then we just place people in the matrix. <laughs> Very simple. And when you do that, you kind of know which investors you're going to choose. And, and so that was our approach for uh, the seed round. And then once you get a big name investor like Sequoia, which is honestly number one, at least that's from my understanding of the rankings right now, I think they change quite often, but like Sequoia is generally one or two. Um, all the other investors kind of like one interest. So that, that garnered a whole bunch of interest for, uh, for the last round we did. And Google's one of those that, that really got excited. And with Google, um, we had a, there's kind of a funny story there. We, so we require every investor that uses us to use Doppler if they have an engineering team. Because it's like, I don't want you investing because you think this is a cool industry. I want you investing because you love the startup. Um, and you love what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and so Google came to us at one point in Google Ventures to be more specific. And uh, was like, hey, we have, uh, we actually have a couple of portfolio companies that are using you. Um, we'd love to invest. And I was like, that's great. No, thank you. Um, and I was just like, we're not ready for fundraising. And so then it's a hard to months, say no to Google, isn't it? Um, 
it is a little bit, but it's not actually, it's not as scary as you think. I mean, the scariest part is like, well, shit, now they're probably going to um, build a competitor <laughs> to us. That was the most scary part. <laughs> but I, I kind of figured like, hey, Google moves a little bit slow on a lot of things, right? Because they have to really get it right for their scale. And so I was like, we probably, if they're going to boot up a competitor, we have some time. Um, we have a couple of years. <laughs> um, and so I said, no, but I was like, hey, if you want to keep using us, that, that'd be awesome. Um, and so they kept adding more and more portfolio companies to using Doppler. Um, including the partner itself who was reaching out started using it. Um, and I was like, that was a big signal for me when the partner individually started using it. And it was about three months later, and that's when the talks really started. And um, from there, it was just like, we were, a, a lot of it was like, you don't know what you know until you've done it. And so I didn't really know where I was in the fundraising process because each round is a little bit different. And so like mm -hmm. the seed round is very, very different than a, seri uh, than a series A, which uh, we're not officially allowed to call it a series A uh, or, uh, because they didn't take a board seat. So we just call it a venture round, but Google did our last round and, and throughout the entire process, I didn't really know where I was at. And so you kind of make some simple mistakes when doing that. Like you assume you're actually farther along than you're not, or mm -hmm. you actually are farther along than you think you are. Um, and so that part was really hard. Um, and the thing is you'd, you'd, you'd be like, Oh, why don't you just go talk to your, your advisors and they'll kind of tell you where you are in, in the, in the round, uh, or in the fundraising process. And the thing is rounds are changing so much these days. Like, think about it. Like a, a, a Dropbox series a is like a pre-seed check. Now it's kind of crazy. Right. Um, to think that, um, like, what was it? I think I was looking at it yesterday. It was either Google or Microsoft had raised less, raised less than like $10 million total. Right. And mostly, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of C checks are being done at 10 or, uh, are being done at like eight to 10 million now and series A's are like at 15 to, uh, to 20, right? So like at a, at a series A, a lot of companies have raised more than Google and Microsoft. That's quite crazy. Do, do, do you think the trend is going to continue with valuations continuing to increase or do you think that we're going to sometimes hit, uh, hit a plateau in the foreseeable future? I hope it won't. I hope it will actually go down a little bit. And I know this is kind of like, um, counter to my own benefit, right? Because like, obviously the higher the valuation, the more we look good. But I mean, in reality, the, the thing I like to say is like, at the, at the end day, at some point it, it goes, it stops going from funny money to real money. Mm. And, and that, that could be at the series D that could be when you go IPO, but at some point there are going to be some set of investors or a large set of investors that are going to go, this is freaking crazy, right? Uh, your valuation does not make sense. You have 500K in revenue and you, you have a 500 million valuation or something, right? That just doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and so you can raise these. And so it's kind of like you're lying to yourself in a way. You can raise these big valuations, but then at the end day, when uh, the goal is to either, now, if you're going to go and you're going to sell the company, that's a different story. You can get, you can get someone to drink the Kool-Aid all the way to the very end. But if you want to go public and that's a company that Doppler wants to build, um, you can't lie to yourself too much because at some point you're either going to have a down round or you're going to have like a big drop in an IPO day. Right. Um, so we, what we try to do is follow the stripe model of walking into valuations. Um, so it's like, think about it. Like you do evaluate, uh, you have a current valuation of like, I don't know, 45 million or something. Um, if you know that you can very easily be a hundred million in the next year and a half, right. Mm -hmm. then that's a valuation you can walk into, but if you have to run or like, like get in a car and drive uh, like that level of speed, like maybe you raised at a hundred mil valuation. So now uh, the series A uh, or sorry, the series B valuation has to be like 500 million sure. and, and you're only at like 250 K in revenue. Well, you're going to have to really drive fast to get there. Right. And sometimes you just can't drive that fast. If you don't have like COVID uh, working for you or some other tailwind, it's going to be like sales of sales. And sometimes sales is hard. Um, sure. 
So we try to make sure that we can always get to the next raise successfully versus like having the biggest TechCrunch article that said we raised the, the biggest valuation. Okay. So, so, so I appreciate you kind of explaining. I mean, it's it really, it was really helpful. And I'm sure the listeners on this call, you know, that are kind of thinking about the, the process and kind of the, 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 the possible missteps. I mean, some of the, the, you know, turning the candy into vegetables. I mean, I, I, some of those quotes, I mean, I, I think are going to stick with me for some time. Um, <laughs> before, before I let you go though, I, I want to get an understanding of really how Doppler I know has a unique ability to help FinTech firms. And I kind of want to get an understanding of, you know, what you guys are doing and, and really how you see that fintech space evolving. Yeah, sure. Do you mind if I give like a quick background about what Doppler yeah, actually is? Please, please. Um, so Doppler is a universal secrets platform. In essence, uh, any company that has code uh, that runs typically has secrets that that code is using. So a good example would be if you're a fintech company, you probably have a database and mm-hmm. your code needs to be able to talk to that database. Um, and probably also needs to talk to, if you're like a neobank, you probably have an underlying bank, like a vault bank of trust is like the, the, the hot one that everyone uses today. Um, you probably need to talk to them as well. And that's probably done over an API of some type. Um, and so you need to store those credentials that like database URL or that API key in a secure place. And you need to make sure that uh, it's kind of like, in a way, it's a little bit of a hard problem because you need to make sure only the right people have access to it, but the right people should make uh, have uh, access to it readily available, right? So it it, it should be easy for the for the people. Uh, it should be easy for the people that should have access uh, to have it uh, to get access to it, but hard for everyone else or impossible for everyone else. Um, that's where Doppler comes in. We're kind of like a GitHub, but instead of for code, it's for secrets. Uh, it's a uniform place where you can store all your secrets across all your projects, environments, cl- uh, cloud infrastructure, and users. Um, again, in one central place, and we'll make sure that. Uh, we enforce the right access control. So developers maybe only get access to local development while your DevOps security team gets access to like production, for example. Um, so that's a high level what Doppler does. Uh, now, the reason why I bring this up is because like there are so many, like I kind of think of any application and a bank is in a way an application, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're doing everything manually, there's some level of code involved, which means there's some level of application involved. And applications I think uh, are a composition of three things code, compute, and secrets. Code, there's a lot of great tools for it already, GitHub and GitLab, um, which, in, which ensures you have like pull requests, for example, to make sure your code is actually reviewed by the developers before shipping it to your users. Uh, you have compute like AWS, GCP, um, and Azure that um, make sure that you can be readily available to all your users in all the different regions and, and be able to respond to requests really quickly. So we have a lot of tooling and infrastructure and compute. But then secrets, it really doesn't really have anything outside of like HashiCorp Vault, which is really painful to use um, for developers. And so I think the message that I'd, that I'd come back is like, hey, we had, I'm sure you've invested deeply into code and compute, but probably not as much into secrets. But secrets are the, the literal keys to your kingdom. If they get out in, in the public, I mean, besides your company being toasted, your, uh, your users are really going to impact. Like I think every company has a very strong responsibility to keep their customers' data secure, especially if you're a fintech company. Like all the purchase, uh, purchases a customers makes, it's highly sensitive private information um, or how much money they have in their bank account. And if you have just one leak, it can destroy all of that. It can put your, your users in a lot of harm. Um, and so I think every fintech company ha- and every company in general, this is a very, very strong uh, responsibility to keep their customer data secure. And you just cannot do that unless you're protecting your secrets. And that means if you're using an ENV file today, you're not protecting your customer's data. If uh, you're passing things around Slack, email, in unencrypted mm-hmm. formats, if you're not encrypting your secrets, you're not doing right by your customers. 
And it doesn't have to be really hard. If anything, Doppler aims to make it super, super simple. And there's other tools in the industry. You don't have to use Doppler, but use a secrets manager or a secrets platform, because if you don't, you're putting your customer's data at risk. Well, Brian, I certainly appreciate uh, the time that you spent with us today. Um, it was a great education um, and really hearing your story and, and the success that, you know, you've had with Doppler. And, you know, we, we, we wish you the continued success and look forward to um, having you back on um, perhaps, um, you know, next year after your uh, perhaps the next round or the uh, next stage in development of the product. Um, but certainly thank you for coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. Absolutely. Love being here. Thank you so much. And we'd be happy to come back. 